Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Garden Church Podcast. Amen. Thank you, John. Thank you, friends. It's so good to be with you. As John mentioned, uh, I've had the joy and privilege of journeying uh, with Darren and some other leaders um, every year. And so throughout these last eight to nine years, because we've become close, I've felt very connected uh, to your journey as a church. So it is an absolute joy to be with you. Uh, I also occasionally run into some old school LA people here. So, so excited about that. Feels like extended family. I'm also privileged to continue your journey through the book of James, the New Testament book of James. If you have a Bible, if you turn to James chapter 2, Um, If you don't, I'll be reading it out loud as well. James, as you've learned, is such a practical book. Such a practical book. And we would do well to remember that though it is very practical, it is in no way unspiritual. In fact, I really sense that while we were worshiping, that as we're preparing to get into this practical book, this phrase was on my mind, we are no less in the presence of God as we're exploring James, as we were when we're singing and worshiping together. This is holy ground. God loves you. He loves us. He wants to speak to us through his word, particularly on this 
difficult issue of partiality from James chapter two. It is heavy, but it is also hopeful. Let me read from the NIV, James chapter two, verses one to 13, and we'll pray together once more. James says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray together once more. Heavenly Father, I thank you that every person in this room matters to you. You are aware of all that is in our hearts right now, all that we're bringing into this space. We believe that you want to speak to us. And so as we open your word, would you open our hearts? Would you challenge us where we need to be challenged? And would you encourage us where we need to be encouraged? And would you lead us to your son, Jesus, that as we hear and listen to your spirit, that we become more like him. We ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. This American author, H. Jackson Brown Jr., once said, live so that when your children think of fairness, caring, and integrity, they think of you. My older brother and I went on a road trip earlier this year. We'd been planning it for some time to our hometown. I was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area. Anyone represent? Yes. It's glorious. Still miss it. The reason we went was to visit my father's grave together for the first time in 20 years. My dad died a very long time ago. It was a great trip. 
And as we were there on the day, we went to the grave and my brother pulled up a bench and we sat there and we began to reflect on my dad's character. We began to reflect on his life and the impact that he had on me, that he had on him. And I'm so grateful to know that though we're all broken, when I think of him, I think of fairness. I think of integrity. I think of caring. I don't remember him showing favoritism to one or the other. But then I began to reflect on my life. When my children think of me, will they think of fairness, caring, and integrity? It's a powerful thought because to one degree or another, many people, some of us in this room, have experienced the opposite. Prejudice, partiality, favoritism, times when people have looked at you perhaps and concluded that you were not worthy or somehow you were inferior or of less value because of where you're from or what you've done or how much you have. This happens within families. It happens within society. And sadly, as the author James reminds us this morning, it can happen even in the church. Some of us may have experienced that. But on the other hand, if we're honest, some of us have been guilty of showing it, of showing partiality. And James brings this to our attention. Some sins are obvious, but there are others that are much more subtle, yet no less destructive. I say subtle only because it's not immediately obvious, but it is absolutely sinister. And so we could say, to just put it in a statement this morning, partiality is a poison. Its presence is deadly within us and among us, but its removal can bring life. And that's what we're here to experience. Amen? So I suppose if we're really going to deal with this, we must think not only how others have treated us, but how we have treated others. When the people in this community think about justice, caring, and fairness, will they think of Garden Church? Will they think of you? Well, the church is a big family, and one of its most surprising characteristics is that it's built on a God who is without partiality. The Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy, God describing himself says, the Lord your God in Deuteronomy 10 is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien or stranger, giving him food and clothing. What a powerful statement. In fact, knowing this truth and knowing the grace of God is what caused the early church to have such a radical impact on the world, an impact that you and I actually benefit from to this day. A while back when I was living in England, I read this book written by an, an atheist who was a, an, an admirer of Christian history. His name was Luke Ferry. And though he did not adhere to the Christian faith, listen to what he says about its impact, particularly on this issue. 
He said in his book, A Brief History of Thought, in direct contradiction to society, Christianity was to introduce the notion that humanity was fundamentally identical, that men were equal in dignity, an unprecedented idea at the time, and one to which our world owes its entire democratic inheritance. No big deal. It was the early church's view of status that in many ways turned the world upside down. And I think it can do the same today. But some of you might say, wait a minute, hang on. I've had bad experiences in the church. And I think that may be true for some of us in this room but it is precisely because of this, we don't run away from the word of God. We pay more attention to it. And so from this passage, I just want us to explore it under three headings. What partiality does, why it exists, and how it dies. And we need to understand all three. And the first is what partiality does. We explore this in verses one through four. James is writing to a church that is in danger of this poison and he wastes no time in getting his point across when it comes to partiality in the church. Here's what it does. Verse one, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, you must not show favoritism. James says right at the beginning of this chapter, What does partiality do? It contradicts faith. Partiality is a contradiction to Christian faith. Now, some might be surprised why James uses such strong language. And you've explored this over the last few weeks. I once heard a preacher say, it's a good thing that this congregation knew that James loved them because when he wrote his letter, he pulled no punches. But it shouldn't surprise us because showing favoritism and partiality, it goes against everything that life in Jesus is all about. And the use of his word glory here when he describes Jesus is key because glory is when what is most valuable to us is most visible to others. So what is your glory, right? Like as as we were praying for the the high school graduates, which moved my heart because my oldest is about to turn 19. Like I'm in the world of teenagers and you can just pray. I see all these kids down at the front. I said to John, I'm like, cherish this. (laughs) Just cherish it. (laughs) Because I'm in a different world right now. I was about to go into another sermon on that, but I'm just gonna gonna (laughs) rein it in here. My kids are so precious to me. It won't take you more than a few moments in a conversation with me for me to talk to you about them, to show you photos of them. It's like a glory. But what is most valuable to the church should be our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And he should be on display in our lives and in our gatherings as a community. It will be reflected in the way that we live. It will be obvious to all. Whatever your glory is, whatever is most valuable to you will be the most visible to everyone. And so James is saying, Jesus is the Lord of glory. His opinion matters most. But when you show partiality, you are telling a different story you are displaying with your behavior a contradiction of your belief. 
and it is a subtle but sinister sin. James brings it out into public, showing us what it looks like. What does partiality do? It contradicts faith. But secondly, it divides people. It contradicts your faith, and it divides people. And if you listen to his illustration and the question that he ends with, you'll feel the weight of this matter. Again, verses two to four. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man comes in in filthy clothes. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here is a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Favoritism. It's a word that in this original language literally means to receive the face, (laughs) which is a strange way of saying it. It means that you're going to receive someone or reject them on the basis of how you perceive them. The outward appearance. Do I receive you or reject you? I don't know. I'm going to measure you. I'm going to measure you against my own standard and determine whether or not I will welcome you. It's to make judgments about people on their external appearance or possessions. James applies this principle to the differences in dress, which back then reflected contrasting social situations. See, in those days, if you were wearing the gold ring and the fine clothes, that wasn't just a matter of having money. That meant that you had a particular status in society, that you were above others, that you were a person of position, And since they are told in verse three where they must be seated, this indicates that perhaps both were visitors. Now, sidebar, but important, all the commentators are disagreed on this. Was this really happening in the church? Or is James using a hypothetical situation? Or my favorite suggestion, no joke, one commentator said that James actually sent people like mystery shoppers to the church just to see how they would react. In any case, he makes his point. If this happens in your church, have you not made distinction? Now, I want us to think about this for a moment. Because some of us might say, well, wait a minute, I, I don't show favoritism to the rich. But I want us all to understand that this is about showing favoritism to anyone. In fact, the word distinctions is plural, not just one kind of distinction, but any kind of distinction. And though he's using the rich and poor as an example, don't think that any one of us in this room is off the hook. Now, as I mentioned, born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, the fact that I mentioned it twice shows that I'm very proud of that. I grew up near Berkeley, and when I was an angsty young teenager, I played in this terrible punk rock band, which was all about sticking it to the man. Right? North Bay. I think I had a sticker on my guitar that said, like, eat the rich or whatever, you know. No photos of this survive, thankfully. But then I start getting a job, and then I pay taxes. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm the man. Don't stick it to me. (laughs) I made distinctions in my mind regarding people that I was going to treat well or not based on my own prejudice. What might that be for you? 
what that what might that be for this church? See, these class distinctions have been a threat to the church from the beginning, and they still are today. We may look at the way someone appears, the way that they are dressed, or how they speak, or where they were educated or not, or what they have achieved in life, and we conclude whether or not we are going to welcome them in. And there's different versions of this. As I was reflecting on this this week, I was thinking about the different places in which God has called us to live. The 10 years pastoring in LA, five years in London, and then coming back to California. There's different species of partiality, but it is everywhere. In LA, it was all about achievement. It wasn't so much money. It was like, oh, what have you done? I mean, you could see it happening even in our smaller groups, you know, the, the attention that you would give to someone in the church, like, wait, I mean, it was like, it's LA, right? Like, you're a producer? Oh my gosh, I'm an actor. <laughs> this is God ordained. Now, I'm not saying that natural connections don't happen. I'm just saying that there's a fine line between looking for natural connections and opportunities and targeting people and showing them favoritism at the expense of other people that God loves. When we moved to London, we became aware very quickly of the historic class distinctions in that country and how it even played out within our church. Oh, you send your daughters where? Oh, well, we don't do that. I was literally told by someone, oh, you shouldn't send your daughters to those schools. I said, why not? Well, people like us, we just don't do that. It's like, okay. (laughs) I think there's some hidden rules. But if I'm honest, there are times in which I've showed partiality. Even as a church planner, as a pastor, like, oh, this person could benefit the church plan. They could benefit the cost. So I'm going to make a beeline for that. That person is a problem. Going to avoid them. A burden. Nope. I'm going to go to the person who can benefit this project. It arises within our hearts often. I remember on one occasion we were uh, finding a flat in London. We were moving house and it's crazy to find something to rent in London. You have to use a broker. It's like nuts. So you do all this negotiating with an agent and on behalf of the owner. And we negotiated with this owner of this flat that we could get. We got him to lower the price. And then we had these specific instructions, you know, that that we had in the agreement and it was all settled. And on the day that I was to arrive at the the flat, I was going to get the keys and do a walkthrough. And there was a guy there and he's wearing like this Nike kind of tracksuit thing, just super casual. And he's there and I'm like, Hey, and the guy's like, what's up? So he's taking me, we didn't say what's up, England, but whatever. He's taking me in, he's going through, and all of a sudden I'm like, I start speaking to him like super rude. I'm like, oh, no, 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 this mirror, this thing left on, that's supposed to go. I told the lamb, this needs to go. And this, this is not right. Like I'm, I'm like super irritated. I'm totally dismissing him. And I keep going through the flat. I'm like, I told the landlord this, I told the landlord this. And after five minutes, the man says, Tim, I am the landlord. thank you for giving us this deal on this, on this flat. And I'm sorry for the way that I totally made a judgment. It was like, this guy has shown up in like the Nike tracksuit for sure. He's like the eight, he's the helper. But I was mistaken. He was the landlord. I was so embarrassed, but it was a lesson for me. Don't judge too quick. How often do we do that in the church? We worship a God who sees And what a tragedy it is when we fail to do the same. 
This is a vicious antichrist attitude that can secretly yet powerfully work in our lives and even within a whole church. It contradicts faith and it divides people and it must be identified. And so James begins to interrogate the heart. And secondly, we discover why it exists. Why does it exist? Why is it that it is possible within my church and within yours that we become inclined to do this? And I see from James essentially two reasons. And the first is that we put ourselves in the place of God as a judge. He says at the end of verse four, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? See, what's going on beneath the surface? James raises the issue with a sobering question. Have you not put yourself in the place of judge? Essentially, he's saying that a wrongful division within the church reveals a division within the heart. You've set yourself up as judges, not even good ones. See, here's where the Bible is so radically different than, than anything else. This issue of partiality, it's not just a social issue. It is a spiritual issue. Society will seek to address it in many ways from the outside in, but Jesus wants to deal with it from the inside out. And that's why James calls our attention to it. Evil thoughts, he says. We're being controlled by these external features. And when we give preferential treatment only to those who benefit us, and shun those who won't. James says it's evil. He says it's evil. And one of the reasons that we do this is because we are often evaluating people on a burden-benefit scale, which we do all the time. Like, that's going to be a burden. I'm going to avoid that one. Oh, benefit, hey, take the good seat. (laughs) You might be able to help. I mean, be honest this morning, friends, and ask yourself, in what environments am I in? Or with what people am I tempted to do this? Because it can happen everywhere. In the church, it can happen in staff, it can happen in leadership, and I'll be the first to tell you that. We may give preference to some precisely because we think they can do something for us. He says it's, it's evil. It appears in the heart as a feeling of superiority over some because of their status, where they live, where they went to school, and so on. So the reason it exists is subtly we put ourselves in the place of God, and secondly, we become blind to the heart of God. We become blind to the heart of God. Look at what James says in verse five through seven. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? He says this, when you show preferential treatment to one, you become blind to the need of both. You become blind to the need of both. And so James reminds them and us, has not God chosen the poor to be rich in faith? Now some clarity here is is necessary. God does not accept people on the basis of what they have. 
So why would you reject them? God's choice reveals his heart. His point is not that all who don't have money will be automatically saved. What James is saying is that neither poverty nor riches influence God's decision. We might even add achievement or status or beauty or whatever it might be. However, those who have nothing are often more ready to receive God's gift. So don't mistake what James is saying. He's not saying that you should discriminate against the rich. Some of you are like, I'll take Tim's old sticker. (laughs) Because listen, here's what the law says in Leviticus 19. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. But judge your neighbor, what? Fairly. In other words, he's not saying that showing kindness and courtesy to rich people is wrong. Okay, so don't misunderstand James. You find out someone's rich, you're like, well, 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 well. (laughs) You want a seat at Garden Church? You don't get one. Take the yacht. No, don't take the yacht. (laughs) He's not saying that showing kindness and courtesy to the rich is wrong. It's only wrong when we do it to the exclusion and detriment of other people. God's choice is based on grace. So if the poor are not at a disadvantage with God, why would we treat them like it? In the next few verses, he draws from a social experience. He says, okay, you want to play the status game? Look where it gets you. Verse six, is not the, are not the rich the ones who are oppressing you? Same verse, is it not they who are dragging you to court? Verse seven, is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name? Some cultural context is helpful. The very thing that you're valuing, he says, that rich culture is the very culture which at that point in time, if you read the history, were exploiting and treating the church unfairly. He says the wealth that they have, they're using as power over you. And they were slandering the name of God. Again, James is not saying that everyone who has means will do this, but it was a very real experience back then that many of the powerful who trusted in their riches were at odds with God and they divided people. And James is saying, how dare you play that game? So again, we ask ourselves, does this partiality exist within our hearts? Why is it that I feel drawn to favor one type of person or one type of group above another? I remember reading a story a while back about a woman who had hip surgery from a fairly well-known surgeon. And it was upon making her follow-up appointment some weeks later that she received the distressing news from the office secretary that he was unavailable to see her for her follow-up appointment because he had extended his vacation. She was furious. She's like, oh, this rich doctor extending his vacation. She began to make a judgment in her mind. Oh, he's in the Caribbean. He is partying hard like tigers on gold leashes, whatever. Like that's what he's doing for sure. And she nursed this grudge within her heart. 
Then some weeks later, when the doctor was finally back and able to take the appointment, she came in and she was ready. She was ready to tell him what she thought. And so upon meeting him, he said, I'm so sorry I had to delay our appointment. You know, I had to extend my vacation. She's like, oh, I know. How was your vacation? You know, the wealthy people taking their vacation, how was it? And he's like, oh, it was actually wonderful. She's like, I'll bet it was. He said, it was actually a working vacation. You know, I was in Bosnia and we were building a hospital. Do you realize that those people do not have access to good medical care? And she was like, okay. (laughs) This is not how I envisioned the conversation going. We make assumptions and then we make judgments. Listen, friends, there are other people within the church and there always will be that may be more or less difficult to deal with. That is true. You're not condemned for that. It's when we make judgments and say, I will refuse to love them, welcome them, and serve them on that basis. That is when we would do well to heed the words of James. And so he says, who are you to pass judgment on another person's worth or value? It's a contradiction of who God is. And it's an understanding what it does and why it exists that we can begin to understand, lastly, how it dies. And die it must in our hearts. How does James deal with this? How does this sin get uprooted and replaced in our own hearts and in our church? How can Garden Church become a community where you reflect the heart and attitude and welcome of God? Well, there's three ways that we see from James here. A new status, a new standard, and a new start. First, partiality dies with a new status from God. He reminds us of the status that every believer has. The honorable name in verse seven is the name of Jesus, the glorious name of verse one, his name by which we are named, the one that gives us our identity. And so he says, in the midst of this rebuke, there's this beautiful phrase. He says at the end of verse seven, the noble name of him to whom you what? Belong. You belong to Jesus. Did you forget how it was that you belonged to Jesus? It was by grace. None of us earned our seat at the table of Jesus. None of us had like a good report card that we showed to Jesus and the angels are like, it's pretty good. And he's like, okay. He's like, damn, I mean, it's like a six out of 10. Lord's like, all right, let him in. It was by grace that we've been accepted. It is by grace that you are welcome. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ and you wonder whether or not, hey, can I get in? Can I belong to the family of God? The answer is a resounding yes, you can. You are welcomed into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It is a gift of his grace. So you can turn to your neighbor right now on the left and the right and say, you are welcome here. You are welcome here. And your left and your right. You are welcome here. (laughs) Friends, you are welcome because of Jesus Christ. That's what James is getting across. You belong. Listen, your status 
that you have with Jesus Christ is not something that is achieved, it is received. And that makes all the difference in the world. It is not achieved, it is received. James says a Christian is a woman or a man who has a new status, we belong to him and he shares his name with us. But we need to live like it. So partiality dies when we remember that we have a new status from God, it's a gift. But then there's a new standard by which we measure ourselves that he talks about in verse eight when he brings up the law because he's showing us the source of this new standard and what it requires. He says, verse eight, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. He's not saying that we should follow the rules as a way to earn our salvation. Listen, following the law of Jesus as understood and enabled by King Jesus is not the reason for your salvation. It is the result of your salvation. We're going to talk more about that next week. And it's called the royal law because it's the law that governs all other laws. I mean, there would be no need for all these other laws if we loved our neighbor as ourselves. But when we go against this, verse nine, if you show favoritism, you sin and you're convicted by the law as lawbreakers. You might say, well, I'm not a murderer. I'm just showing partiality. But surely God cares about it all. Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. James is reminding us the law is indivisible. Why? Because it comes from one law giver. Verse 11, for he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. The law is not a random collection of commandments, but a reflection of the character of the one law giver, God himself. What gives the law unity is the one who spoke it. And therefore, friends, each one matters. Like the Ten Commandments. Think about it. It's not just some random list. When God says, don't steal, he's saying, it's because I won't steal from you. Don't be unfaithful in your marriage. You know why? Because I am a faithful God. Don't lie to your neighbor because I'll never lie to you. The Ten Commandments reveal the very identity of God. And it's for our good. Verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law. That gives what? Freedom. His character shown through his law is our standard. But if we absolutely refuse to show mercy to others, then we demonstrate that perhaps we have not truly received mercy for ourselves. What a sobering warning. You might say, okay, why does all this matter? Because listen, if you see yourself in need of mercy, then you will see others in need of mercy those of you who welcome, those of you who greet in your house churches, your smaller groups, we would do well to remind ourselves when all kinds of people are coming through our doors that you tell this to yourself, I am one in need of mercy and therefore these are those in need of mercy. Someone that you're tempted to be judgy with or to condemn or to shun, you look at them and say that person is in need of the mercy of God, just like I am in need of the mercy of God. When you look at the perfect law of God, you recognize yourself as one in need of mercy. 
But how can we become merciful? Well, here's the good news. By experiencing mercy. And so he ends, like, James is like, oh, it's hard. And then you get to verse 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You're like, yes. The highlighter comes out. Like, I love it. (laughs) Nobody highlights the, like, evil thoughts. Like, nobody highlights that. Everyone highlights verse 13. But there's a reason for it because that is the key to how we can fulfill the rest. How can we become merciful? By receiving mercy, because mercy triumphs over judgment. We confess our sin. We confess, God, there's all the ways in which I have not shown mercy. I've shown partiality, but you show me mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. And that word triumph is beautiful because it carries the idea of assurance and confidence the posture of one who stands on the battlefield as a, as a victor. And what is it that wins our battles? Mercy. Because we will not fulfill the law perfectly. So where can we find this confidence? Where can we find the resource to fight off these evil thoughts and not withhold a good seat to others? By realizing that we ourselves have been given a seat that we do not deserve. According to God's standard, his law, we're the one in filthy rags. We're the one trying to come into God's presence in filthy rags. Jesus is the one who deserves the highest seat. But in his mercy, Jesus came into our world and he willingly took the lowest seat. And when he went to the cross to die for our sins, he took upon himself our filthy rags. And so at the cross, he took the worst seat so that we could have the best seat. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 2, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and what? Seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Friends, look at the seat that you have with Jesus. Draw on that truth moment by moment and it will kill off your partiality. Because when you see that Jesus has given you the best seat in his presence by grace, you won't hesitate to offer the best seat to others in your presence. Let's pray together and let's ask that God would remind us anew and afresh of the seat that he has given to us. And our hope is that when others think of this church in our lives, that they would think of Jesus. Father, we thank you that you are a God of mercy. Lord Jesus, you lowered yourself in mercy. You died on the cross for us in mercy and in grace so that we could give the seat that we don't deserve with you. God, I pray as we reflect on this in your presence, that your Holy Spirit would uproot any favoritism, evil thoughts, and partiality from within this community and within our own hearts that we might love just as we are loved. Spirit of God, would you move? 
pray that this would be a time of healing for those who have wounded and those who have been wounded by the treatment of others. King Jesus, you are the healer. Pray that you would heal even now as we respond in your presence. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church. Spirit of